I want to welcome Ted Vinatieri to Redeemer Church this morning, who's preaching for us today, as well as for the next two Sundays. I've known Ted for about two years now. His love for Christ and his church is evident when just simply speaking with Ted. Ted has pastored New Life Community Church in Stafford for the past nine years. Prior to that, he was the associate pastor of Grace Fellowship Church in Hazleton, Pennsylvania for 16 years. He's currently taking a ministry staff position with Pillar Church Dumfries. Prior to full-time ministry, he was in telecommunications sales and support with AT&T. He's originally from Whittier, Whittier, California, and he studied at Westminster Seminary in California before moving east. He wanted to make sure that he let you know that he is also so thankful for 41 years of joyful marriage to Janine. They enjoy time with their three adult daughters and their families, including one grandchild and more coming. Ted, I invite you to come, brother, and give us the word. Well, praise God. This is his day. It's his word, and it's our pleasure to be his people and to know the delights of our God. He delights that his people come together and worship him, and that's our goal this morning. As we open the word, our goal is to seek our God, to see our Christ, and thereby become partakers and worshipers of him on this, his holy day. Uh, you'll see there, we're going to be looking in a little study that I'm doing, just a mini-series here in Philippians chapter 3. I've entitled it, The Shape of Freedom, Down at the Cross. Um, think about this idea of freedom. Today's message I've entitled, Exchanging Imprisonment for Freedom, Exchanging this imprisonment here for the freedom that God gives us in Christ. Well, when we speak of that word freedom here in America, we have some deep abiding meaning that we hold. Uh, it's not just a word, it's a concept. It's something that's very important to us. We talk about our, our freedoms, our personal liberties. Uh, we have a bill of rights that secures us with these guaranteed freedoms that we can have, such as what we're doing here today freedom of assembly, and others on the face of this earth don't have it. So this idea of freedom is something very dear to us, especially if you think about what we've just celebrated, our American Independence Day, the 4th of July, and kind of an ironic twist to the whole thing. It was a unique 4th of July that I've, in my 64 years, have ever celebrated at social distancing. Now, that's just not what the 4th of July is all about. Um, so what a twist that uh, a nation that's founded on these personal li liberties and freedoms, we've had to distance ourselves from, in a sense, deny ourselves of much. But I want us to think about this concept of freedom having all these sorts of ideas and nuances. For the sake of today, we want to narrow this thing down, and we want to see that concept of freedom according to the Bible's approach. And so what we need to do is to first think about the Old Testament wide-angle view of freedom that God gives us. He's speaking about Israel, a nation who were collectively not free to obey and love him. We know that over and over as we read the history of the Old Testament, that there was just this inability to follow and do what God asked 
them to do as a nation. And although he took care of them and he kept their, their own freedoms uh, pretty much secured and uh, all the outside forces that would constantly attempt to uh, take away their ability as a nation to get along, God took care of that. But God left the internal ability to believe, to trust, to have freedom. He left that up to their responsibility. And we know the history of the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, the people forgot God. The people turned and obeyed their own little rules rather than bowing down and worshiping and obeying his laws. So there was a collective rebellion. They did not keep the freedom that God had guaranteed them if they would follow his law. So they didn't experience God's freedom as he designed. By their disobedience, they substituted for a lesser freedom than the freedom that God had designed for them to enjoy as a people. So taking these lesser freedoms, it brought them into slavery. It brought them into bondage. It brought them into the freedom that they craved that was never the freedom God designed for human beings. Now, take that wide-angle picture to the nation of Israel, and let's start bringing it down to the New Testament, where God then starts dealing with the individuals. And uh, especially that's why we're in New Testament epistles today. Uh, the Apostle Paul does a wonderful job in a number of his epistles to the various young churches that he had started, helping the believers at these churches to recognize how their freedoms that God had designed for them, they were having a trouble enjoying and, and following. So this narrower focus speaks to the individual. We know that when Jesus came on the scene, he came to speak against the false liberties, the false freedoms that the Jewish religious leaders had set up, these false ways of keeping standards and laws that somehow were to make the people feel free. Jesus came on the scene and he declared something very radical and very different. In John chapter 8, Jesus proclaims, if you continue in my word, meaning the Son of God, in my word, if you become my follower, then you will know truth, and that truth will set you free. Okay, so personal freedom is based upon truth. Truth, if we would follow the truth of God, if we would obey his law. Jesus continued speaking in John 8, everyone who commits Sin is a slave to sin, but if the Son of God sets you free, you are free indeed. We all know that. I'm not telling you anything new, am I? And yet, these wonderful words that we hold on to, especially as believers who love Jesus Christ, who say, this is my byword. This is, this is what God has called me into, is this freedom in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul has to come and speak to believers just like you and me, people in local small churches gathered in various places around the land, and he has to write these letters and say, hey, something's going on. Something has taken away your freedom. Something has spied out your liberty, and you've allowed it to take over. And you're not experiencing that wonderful walk of faith that God intended. And therefore, God is not getting the glory that he designed through his son Jesus when he sent him to earth. Well, the gospel good news, which Jesus proclaims, is that freedom for us, personal freedom, a freedom to be a changed person. Our holy God himself brought us to himself. We, if we confess Christ as Lord and Savior, as he brought us to himself, 
we were given that gift of faith to believe him, to put aside the foolish ways of self-made freedom. He gave us the ability to believe on his son, to repent and to believe, to cling to Jesus. And so now, in that new found faith in Christ, we are free. Our hope is strong. We have the ability to become these people enjoying daily more and more the liberty and the freedom uh, that God designed for us. Well, today and the next two Sundays, we're going to look just at verses 7 through 12 of Philippians chapter 3. And this section of scripture is going to help us to strengthen that freedom that we have in Christ. It's going to help us to hopefully align our daily practices, our daily lives that quiet worship that goes on inside you and me to align that, to shape our lives as we focus down at the cross of Christ. As we look at the work of Christ on the cross, it helps us to align and shape our lives to enjoy the freedom that Christ has set us free. Let's read chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. I'll read the whole passage. Today we're just going to look at 7 through 9. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version fairly similar to ESV and others. Philippians 3, 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For him I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them but rubbish, so that I might gain Christ. So that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that's derived from keeping a law, but a righteousness which is through faith in Christ. That righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, so that I might know him, and I might know the power of his resurrection. I might know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect or complete, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also Jesus has laid hold of me. We sang that song to God as our prayer. Oh, Lord, help us to profit from your word. Open up your word. And so we know his promise, his spirit is with us to help us. If I was able to give you a handout, an outline today, we would be at Roman numeral one in the outline. So if you're taking notes, you can just put this. Roman numeral one, background and context for Paul's teaching. I'm just going to give you a little bit of background and context because I'm jumping you right into a text. And I hate to do that because... Stories need context. Otherwise, we get the wrong story, don't we? And context here is Paul has written this letter to this church of believers to whom he founded this church probably 12 years prior to this. And the issue is that there's some great uncertainty going on in Paul's life right now. He's under house arrest. He's in Rome. And he's... Under house arrest, this is probably Acts chapter 28 during that period of time because 
He's just freely preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. His goal is to bring freedom to human beings who are captive in their sin. And for preaching freedom to liberate you and me from our bondage to self-love, he's in chains. He's in prison in Rome. The Roman government and obviously the Jews in Jerusalem who hate him want this man put aside. Now, whether he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life, maybe he's going to be executed. He doesn't know. He's, he's waiting to hear. But while he's waiting to hear, under great bondage, here's a man writing letters to brothers and sisters in Christ to, to proclaim freedom to them. Seems kind of ironic, doesn't it? But to me, that's a beautiful capsule of what the gospel's all about. This wonderful irony of our God. His purpose in creation was to make you and I, human beings, in his image, to enjoy fellowship with him, to be in the likeness of God, the, the freedom of the Godhead, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoying their own community. And God's goal was, and we don't quite understand all of this mystery of God, but to allow sin, to allow human beings, Adam and Eve, to choose to go against his purpose. And as they chose to go against his purpose, their, their free will was then bound, and our free will was bound also in Adam. And you and I continue to choose that bondage of, no God, it's my way, I have a better way. And in that, when God then purposed to send his son to earth to solve that problem, God gets greater glory. God gets more beauty to himself as he shows this heart of love, this magnanimity of God by sending a son, a redeemer, to earth to liberate you and me who are fully responsible for our sin and accountable for what we've done. So this big picture, this grand picture of God Paul is writing it out to the Philippian believers. I'm in prison because there's a greater picture, guys, to live for, and I want to urge you in Philippi who are younger Christians who are having your liberty spied out by these false teachers who have come and have said, hey, just act a little more Jewish. Come on, do a little bit more of the Old Testament law. And we call them the Judaizers. You know, the book of Galatians has a lot written about it. Paul is dealing with them in a lighter way here in Philippi, but it's the same problem. Faith in Jesus Christ alone, through Christ alone, is not enough. You've got to add a little bit more to tell God that you really mean business. Keep yourself kind of on good stead with God. And Paul's saying, absolutely not. That's, that's foolishness. That's bondage. That's a prison. If the Son sets you free, John 8, then you are free indeed. Okay, so that's the background for the greater cause of Christ. Paul is saying, I'm in these chains and I don't want you, brothers and sisters, who aren't in prison, to experience an internal prison that's worse than what I'm experiencing here in Rome. And then secondly, under this idea of background and context, Paul is always a pastor. Paul's got the heart of a pastor. He's a shepherd, the Greek word koimenos, meaning shepherding-like. And he's concerned for these ones who named Jesus as Savior at, at Philippi, these, these ones who want to take away their freedom in Christ. What Paul is doing here, just earlier in the context of this passage, we didn't read verses 2 through 6, 
but Paul is kind of setting up the kind of devil's advocate picture. Hey, if, if going by this good works thing is what it's all about, then I'm the one who's up on the top. I'm the one on the apex, because look at me. Look at my heritage, first of all. A Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, blah, 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 blah. He says all these things in verse uh, 3 and 4 of the circumcision. Um, if anybody's going to have confidence in the things they do and what their inheritance is all about, it's me. And then secondly, he talks about in verse 4 through 6, this idea of how great he was. Uh, I'm, verse, I'm sorry, verse 6. This as to my zeal, my uh, Jewishness, my keeping of law. I'm a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness of the law, I'm found blameless. So if anybody's got their act together, those guys that are talking to you in Philippi, they're nothing. I've got one over on them. In fact, many over on them. Paul's trying to help these believers at Philippi recognize the foolishness of the teaching that has been coming in and spying out their liberty. He cares about them. He loves them. So that's a little bit of the background and the context of why Paul's writing what we've just read here in chapter 3. Now, number two in your outline, Paul details the gospel way to live. So what we've just read here in verses 7 through 12 is really the gospel way of living. We all have carved out our own way of living prior to knowing Christ as Lord and Savior. But Paul is emphasizing, here's God's design. Here's the gospel way of living. The age-old way to live says, work hard at looking good so that your goodness will be a way of getting you favor with God. Nobody even has to tell us that. We've all kind of learned how to be looking around and making sure, oh, mom's not here. We can do, oh, I hear footsteps. You know, let's, let's act right, you know, so I'm not in trouble with mom or with dad or with the teacher or whatever. Okay, it's just kind of instinctive in us, isn't it? We know how to kind of look good so that our goodness will keep us in favor with whoever's in charge. That personal ingenuity, that sense of accomplishment, all of that about us that we didn't even have to be taught to do, we just automatically do it, it's all fuel to make people feel good about themselves. Your little accomplishments, the, the neat things that you do, the attaboys that you get, the likes that you get on your social media. It's all there to kind of fuel this sense of, I'm okay, I'm all right. I have my own personal freedom. I know who I am. Nobody can take that away from me. It gives us a false sense of personal freedom. It makes us feel like we can control our own little destiny. Even if you're very young and you know you're still under your parents' authority, still have your own ways of kind of being your own person in the family, having your own personality and your own edge to life. It's instinctive in all of us. So Paul details that that is the false way to live, and we'll look at that a little bit more. But what he's emphasizing here, letter A, you might say under Roman numeral 2, faith in Christ brings true freedom. So false freedom, we're going to look a little bit more at what false freedom is, but true freedom, faith in Jesus Christ brings true freedom. And that's what he says in verses 7 through 9. He shows that it's God who comes at us. God initiates the work. God's on that mission of 
liberating power to help us from what we're stuck in. We're stuck in sin. We're stuck in our Adamic nature, Adam and Eve, and the way that they chose to be independent from God, to do their own thinking. It emboldened them to think that they're okay. They've got something to offer. And it's that Adamic nature where we're our own independent person that God is saying, I want to liberate you people. And that's why he sent his son to come and free us from that nature of sin that Adam and Eve chose and that you and I willfully choose as well. As the sun sets you free, you are net then free indeed. So Paul is following up those words of Jesus Christ by showing the superiority of the gospel way. It brings greater freedom than what any person created on earth could ever have for themselves. Each of us works hard at producing our own freedom from the earliest days, that independent nature in us. We work hard at protecting ourselves protecting our self-interest. We call that freedom. Freedom is really just the quest of survival instinct in us. Having three adult daughters, my wife and I sometimes will find ourselves just kind of remembering some incident or those early days when the, the girls were real young and at the table. And we think, we chuckle now as we recount some of it, and we just realize, wow, we were kind of clueless. But Praise God, he wasn't clueless. He helped us through this. But if you think about our three daughters, and they are all different personalities, uh, very common first words, though, out of each of them. No. Mine. um, Me can do. Those were just instinctive. We didn't have to teach them. Somehow they picked it up and figured it out. Uh, Their goal was to protect their little personal space. Their demand for freedom on the three of them ranged on an interesting continuum from our one who was very quiet, very docile, didn't act outwardly in rebellion, yet quietly we knew there was stuff going on. And then kind of in the middle, one who was kind of not verbal about it, but gave us the looks and kind of had the chin up in the air a little bit just to show us. And then on the other end of the spectrum, yes, we had a redhead and she... I hate to say it, but it's part of the DNA. She was just rebellious. She would say no, and she would pull away. You know, I'm a red. I was a redhead, so I can say that I was. It's all gone now. But almost like your pastor, actually. It's crazy. On this spectrum, here we all are. Are it's just it's in us, and we manifest it in different ways. But you can laugh as you look at it. You say, nobody had to teach these girls to rebel. I mean, our goal was always we wanted them to just be successful and and enjoy life by just doing what God wanted them to do and listening to mommy and daddy, you know? Life will go well. Ephesians 6, you know, if you honor and obey, life will go well, won't it? Okay, it's built into us. So Paul tells us that the new way to freedom can only come through the process of faith, and we see that in verse 9. See, twice... That which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Think about Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You know that passage, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that it's not of yourselves, it's a gift from God. Not as a result of anything you can do works so that none of us can boast. None of us can say, I did it. No, it's all about God's gift. 
this grace, it's his giving of this ability to believe, this faith, so that we can be free from our stubborn freedom, our stubborn sense of freedom, which is really sinful. Well, letter B, what is the pattern of this new faith? And we're going to see it in two steps. So the, the pattern of new faith, it's a two-step process. Verses 7 and 8, Paul shows us step number one. This pattern of faith, I must actively call out. I must count as loss. I must reckon. Whatever words are that you have in your translation here, I count. More than that, I count all things, or I reckon all things, or I account all things as loss. I must actively identify the old counterfeit freedom that I bought into, that self-trust. I have to say it's worthless. I have to actively identify that, those ways where I trust myself, where I try to control my world. I must say to myself, hey, that stuff's junk. It's phony. It doesn't work. It's short-lived freedom. It doesn't really satisfy talking about stuff that's deep down in us, folks, that's muscle memory, that's stuff you and I have committed to our own little way of living from day one, and even we continue to commit after having asked Christ to be our Lord and Savior, having the Holy Spirit in us and having the Word of God in front of us. We still find ourselves quietly, muscle memory, going back to those little ways of freedom. Just on the way down here from Stafford today on 218, I'm about ready to turn left on 218. I see this little older truck kind of puttering along, and I think, I'm going to get out in front of them because it's a long drive to get over to Dogland, and they're going to be sitting there. And I thought, oh, it's Sunday morning. I'll just give the benefit of the doubt. So I waited and let them go. Sure enough, we didn't go more than 40 the whole way down here to 301. And I'm just sitting there, like, kind of grinding. Okay, it's 45. It's even 50. It's 40. And this person's going no more than 35, 40 the whole way. You know, you just start thinking about it. This is crazy. This is a 25-minute stretch. It's wasting time. I want to spend some time with Pastor Jim praying. Oh, you stupid. You should have left earlier. Come on. You know, and you you start going through this little self-talk. Now, that self-talk is stuff that you and I are used to. In fact, we click into it. We don't even realize we're doing it. And in fact, I I would submit to you that it takes up much of our day. We don't even realize how often we have set up these little ways of personal freedom. So now I'm defining this person driving slow in front of me. I should have done it earlier. I'm thinking about I should have been smarter. I should have left earlier. I mean, it just goes on and on, that self-talk. You know that all that stuff is what you and I have put inside here to protect ourselves. Now I have to get here and... Am I going to make a little excuse to Pastor Jim as to why I didn't get here earlier? Well, there's a car that was really slow, this truck in front of me, and why would I do that? To make myself look good? To kind of pep up my reputation a little bit with Pastor Jim? Wait a minute. He's not Jesus. Why would I worry about that? Ah, but I do care about what people think about me, don't I? Now, see all this stuff that goes on in us very quietly? It's stuff we bought into. It's, it makes up our person. And it's what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3. It takes away the real freedom that Christ has set us free. So that we don't have to live with people's thoughts of us, 
We don't have to live with personal reputation. We don't have to live with defending ourselves. Somebody says something to us. Pastor Jim says, well, why'd you come down 218? Everybody knows you should come the other way. Oh, now I have to defend myself. Well, I thought it was Sunday and I was going to take my time getting here, George, you know. I mean, we're so used to defending ourselves, aren't we? And that's this quiet, false freedom that we've bought into. And God is saying, play with it. It's worthless. I don't need it in heaven. I've already secured your freedom in Jesus Christ. Pastor Jim doesn't need it either. and Nobody else needs it. So why? Why do you waste your time? Why do you think these ways? These are old patterns that die hard, aren't they? Wow. So the first step in this process is to be able to say, don't trust myself. It's junk. It's phony. It's short-lived. It doesn't satisfy. Second step is repentance. It's calling, and this, this actually this two-step process is repentance. It's calling it for what it is, junk, <laughs> worthless. And then number two, it's saying there's something beautiful that I need to embrace. Instead of holding on to reputation, what people think of me, having excuses for things, I need to throw that away because that's not freedom. And instead, I need to turn myself to what is valuable. And that's calling on God's freedom. That's embracing the real thing as I dump the counterfeit. Step two is actively speaking truth to my heart. It's taking the value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. You see that in verse 8. Look what he says. I count all things in loss for loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Lord. That's what we've got to get our eyes fixed on, folks. There's a value that's surpassing, that, that passes up everything else. People's reputation, getting along in life and being happy, nobody messing with me. All that stuff that I'm trying to control, my freedom, is worthless because there's something far greater. It's knowing Jesus. It's setting my heart on Christ. It's valuing the one who is beautiful, lovely, worthwhile spending time with. That's the other step, actively speaking to my heart of the value of knowing Christ. It's convincing myself of the superiority of what he gives me through his son, Jesus Christ. In the next two weeks, I'm going to spend some more time in verses 10, 11, and 12, really unpacking that. How do we do that? How do we identify with Jesus? And that's not something that is well-practiced in us. As much as we want to say, yeah, I know Philippians. I've read it. I know the New Testament enough. But, oh, my friends, by experience, are we daily grabbing hold of it? So we'll, we'll go with 10, 11, and 12 later. I must let go of the old way of defining and living in that supposed freedom. And by faith, I must be willing every day to say, yes, Jesus, your freedom is the real thing. I want the surpassing value. I want the full package of your freedom. I don't want that self-made supposed freedom that I have lied to myself and lived in for a long time. Okay, letter C. In the Roman numeral two, knowing Jesus is what makes us free. So I'm going to expand that second part, that step two. Knowing Jesus is what makes us free. In verse eight and then repeated in verse 10, Paul tells us that knowing Christ is what this supreme value is all about. You see the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So knowing 
Jesus is what it's about. The New Testament gives us a robust way to see this word know or knowledge or knowing Jesus. The Bible tells us that the the one who initiates knowledge in us is God. He's the one who first came to know us. Not that I knew him. Not that I was out there looking for him and, and, hey, God better find me because I'm looking for him. Instead, the Bible gives us the idea that God is the one who initiated. He first came to know us. 1 Corinthians 1.24, amongst many passages, says that God first called on us. God made that first move to know us. And that word know in the Greek has a lot of historical background from the Old Testament idea of the Hebrew word of God knowing a people and being intimately acquainted and desiring them and wanting them. You think about the nation of Israel. He, he said all the time that word yaad, I, I know you, I want you, I desire fellowship with you like a spouse does to their spouse, a husband to his wife and a wife to her husband. I want you. I want to know you intimately. I want to spend my life with you. And it's that idea of knowing God's intimate desire to be with us and know us is what Paul's getting at here. Verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1 says that it was his doing that we are now in Christ. It's his knowing us. It's because it's his prerogative. He has made it his business to know us. Me? Yeah. Rebellious, redheaded, freckled, little chubby Ted that always was the troublemaker out of the three boys, getting in trouble all the time. Why? Okay, just because there was a prerogative on God's part to select, to pull out of my sin and my rebellion and say, I want you. I'm setting you up. I'm making you mine. I sent my son to die for you. Not because of anything good in me. And each of you are the same. Doesn't matter how together your life has been. Doesn't matter how nice externally you have been and compliant you are in the family. Doesn't matter. Scripture says there is this internal drive of self-love, this rebellion that God says, you got to get rid of that. You need real freedom. To know Jesus Christ is to be wonderfully known by God. Just as 1 John says, we love him because he first, amen, he first loved us. Okay, well, three things then, and then we'll go to some application here. First thing I have is this. Knowing Jesus recalibrates my value system. To know Jesus, like Paul's getting at here in verse 8, to know him. And then in verse 10, to have this knowledge of God recalibrates my value system. Paul shows us that opening up to Jesus, by by letting go of our old system of self, we begin now a whole new way of seeing what's really important to God and what's important then to us. It's worth our energy. It's what's worth our interest. I'm not relying on what the world tells me are my credits, the good things that I'm supposed to be shooting for, such as my looks, my image, my intelligence, 
my athletic ability, my sharp tongue, my pithy responses, my little sarcastic jabs, my sense of style, <laughs> my easygoing nature that people enjoy being around, my dry sense of humor that always gets the right zinger, my way of just kind of being cool, and all the other reasons for self-esteem that the world teaches us that, that seem quietly to throttle us more than we imagine. No, we have to start letting go of all the long-held habits of life, of looking for recognition, <laughs> of being liked. When we walk into a room, at least not sticking out because we look so out of touch or we're too put together and we turn heads. No, we just don't want to be noticed. Whatever is our style, God is saying, that's not what I care about and that's what you should be caring about. What should occupy us is this new calibrated value system. See these people where I'm walking into this room as people needing a savior. I'm his light. You know, as blah and plain as I am and as unintelligent as I might be, I'm his light. And that's what's more important than anything else. There's a lost world out there. Jesus has me in and he wants me to be his light and his hope to people around me. So if I stumble, if I look stupid, that's their problem. I have a savior who never stumbles, who's not stupid loves me and makes me feel secure and gives me something to say to other people. You see, that's the new recalibration of values that God wants for us. This stuff that we've been trusting in is less and what Jesus knows and thinks of me are much more. So we recalibrate the value system. Secondly, knowing this word gnosko in the Greek, knowing Jesus will daily transform me daily transform me. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You know, as we, as we look on Jesus, as we view him, we have the Holy Spirit from Christ. The Spirit of God enables us as we behold our Savior to become more and more like him. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. As we look at him, we are being transformed into his image. So knowing Jesus, if I spend the time with him in his word, if I think about some of the lyrics of these songs that we were just singing and I let them sing over my, I mean, get your YouTube out or Spotify and just get the lyrics and just play the songs a little bit this week. Let this stuff linger. What's God saying about me? What's God saying about his knowing me and valuing me? Whoa, this stuff is powerful. It cleans out the other stuff that I've put in there. It's worthless. Being transformed into his image. Think about uh, the words of the old Scottish pastor from the 1800s, Thomas Chalmers, entitled this process. I heard this years ago when I first got saved back in, in uh, 1975. A friend gave me this treatise from a, I thought it was a Puritan. He actually was in the 1800s. looked like a Puritan. He says, read this, this treatise, this little sermon. And it was entitled, the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive, expul, P-U-L, expulsive power of a new affection, of something that's so much more beautiful than anything I've seen that it just pushes all this other stuff outside. Jesus is more 
beautiful. Jesus is more valuable. Jesus' ways are lovely. His words to me mean much more than what my older brothers used to say to me. Daddy, daddy, two by four, couldn't get through the kitchen door. <laughs> Stuff like that. What did that do in me? What did that play in me? How powerful were those images as a kid? And what do they tell me to be looking for and value now? And instead, the expressive power of a new affection, the beauty of Jesus and what he says of me is much more important and valuable. And I listen to that. And I let my mind play over and over. The expressive power of a new affection. As we look on Jesus, we see uncompromising wonder and beauty. It expels all the lesser stuff that we trust in. Our bondage to sin, to false freedom, is broken by stronger attraction, by something much more compelling, a joy that is outside of us. It's Jesus. And then the third point, knowing Jesus, I am united for eternity, never to be abandoned. Knowing Jesus, I'm united for eternity, never to be abandoned. We see that in verse 9 of our text. That this knowing, this gnosko of Jesus means that I'm found in him. My identity is him. The term theological, theologically used is union with Christ. You've heard that before probably. We're united with Jesus Christ. What does union with Christ mean? It's a beautiful term to unpack. It's this amazing concept that God wants you and I to hold on to all of our days. The idea of union with Christ is that we're united with God for eternity through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, on Calvary. Okay, So your personal sense of worth, of goodness, your personal sense of being righteous, it's all bound up in how God views you through his son, Jesus. Union with Jesus Christ is part of your justification. He has declared you just. He has declared you good and free from sin because of the perfection of his son, Jesus. It's union with Christ. Knowing Jesus means I'm united with him for eternity. He'll never turn his back on me. I'm never going to be separated from that love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate me. Nothing. So your value, your worth can never be doubted because you possess Christ's infinite worth to the Father in heaven. Well, this wonderful picture I think is burned, I memorized this as probably the second verse of scripture I memorized after God saved me. I had a friend give me a little memory card. He says, read this, memorize this. And it was Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live here in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I am crucified. Think of that picture. I'm crucified. I'm dead to Christ. And he went to Calvary on the cross for my sin. I want to see myself identified with that work. I'm crucified with Christ. We're going to be looking at that next week. If you look at, on verses uh, 10, 11, and 12, we're going to be suffering with Jesus. We're going to be conformed to the image of his death. We're going to die with him. And then we're going to raise with him. And that's going to be a pattern of daily living for us. That's how Paul is going to help us put this thing together. So come back next week and uh, let's hear that.
Well, in application, let me just ask you to think about a couple things here. Um, what are the things that get in the way of me having this stuff front and center in a given day? Most of you are believers here. You've been around the scripture enough. You've heard these things. I'm not telling you anything new. But how is it that like at the church in Philippi, something comes in and spies out our freedom? We allow something to quietly for even a few minutes, like that little red truck driving down 218 today, slow, poking along, spied out my freedom. How did I let that happen? I can't blame that driver. That driver was God's person, that image bearer. They chose to drive 40 miles an hour. I needed the power of Christ to be behind that person and say, okay, God, you have purposes for me, and I need to learn from this. Instead of just kind of grinding, trying to act like everything's okay. I've been married 41 years. My wife is my most wonderful sanctifier. She'll be sitting there, and after about five minutes, she'll finally say, she tells I'm kind of grindy, honey, is it something? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Well, is anything bothering you? No, no, I'm fine. That person driving up in front of us is pretty slow, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. She gives me a little moment, then I finally let it out. Okay. All right, I'm ticked. Okay, I've been praying for you. No problem, sir. Thanks, thanks, honey. Okay. She knows me well. She knows how to pray for me, not just put it in front of me and, you know, pretend like she's hitting the brake pedal all the time because that's irritating to the person driving, isn't it? She's not gripping on the, the armrest, you know, trying to tell me, slow down, stop being upset. She's praying for me, and then she brings it to my attention. Okay, and I'm thankful for that. And God has put some of those in our lives, hasn't he, to help us. But I've got to be listening. And I, it took me 41 years to kind of get to the point where I listened to her, and she's not an enemy to me. She's actually God's blessing to me and a help to me. Obviously, we haven't fought all those years, but I've just quietly had to learn how to stop fighting this thing in my mind and say, God's got her there for a reason. God's got stop signs. God's got reminders. There was a, a cop sitting on... 218 up in Stafford, as I drove by, I saw him just sitting there, and he had his little gun out. Thankfully, I was going the speed limit, but as a reminder, and then later I encountered the truck down on 218. That should have been the best reminder to not grind and get upset, but no, you think I would have learned from seeing that cop trying to be speed trapped? Then I'm grinding down on 218. See, it's in us, isn't it? It's part of our makeup. We need that power of the cross to believe what is true about us. So what I'm getting at is we have given ourselves to false idols. I have certain things that make me feel okay. There are things I trust in, my ability to drive, my ability to be perceptive, whatever it is, okay? I'm just being a little open with you right now today. But I'm sure each of you has your own little idols that you hold on to, those things you cling to that are worthless, that don't really get you where you need to go. They're substitutes for Jesus. And I would just say, brothers and sisters in Christ, I believe Paul is helping us in this passage to recognize there are things that control us. Paul shared some of the things that controlled him in verses 4 through 6. And anything that I find as gain, I need to be willing to say it's lost, it's worthless. Think about the lyrics of the song that we just sang. My worth is not in skill or my name. Did any of you know my last name, Vinatieri? Did you know that I'm related to 
Adam Vinatieri, the kicker for the Colts? You probably don't even care, do you? I don't care that much either. But there's my name. Whoa. Oh, by the way, do you know him? Like, he's one of the best of the best. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, just a second, guys. I'm headed for it. So what? You see, what do we trust in? What is our value? What is our worth? My worth is not in skill or even somebody else's name that I'm going to hitchhike onto. In win or lose, in pride or shame, my worth is in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. Brothers and sisters, this week, talk to God about how you want to grow in valuing and treasuring him. And you want him to show you some of those worthless little quiet idols that you cling to keep you from really enjoying and experiencing the freedom in Christ that he secured for you at Calvary. Would you do that? Just think about it. I'll be praying for you. You pray for me. We'll have a better drive down 218 next week, okay? God wants us to be a people who are thrilled with him being transformed as we behold his beauty. Amen? If you don't know that beauty, as I close here today, if you're not certain that you have a relationship like what Paul is describing and what we're hoping for, you don't have that relationship of faith. You're really trusting and clinging to God alone. And my friend, you're hurting today. And you need God's transformation. You need the gospel hope of Jesus Christ. And I want to urge you, don't let today go by hearing that you can be changed, you can be transformed, you can be forgiven of your sin and made new through Jesus Christ. Don't let today go by. Would you say I've heard that before? No. Today is the day for your salvation. Today is the day God wants you to get hold of him and cling to him and trust in nothing else but him. Let today be that day of salvation. Speak to me, speak to Pastor Jim or any of the adults here that know Jesus. We would be happy to speak to you about that. Pray with me as we close this sermon, would you?